Welcome, and thank you for joining us as we listen to the lively messages of Brother Nick Manzi, a down-to-earth pastor who communicates God's truth in understandable and practical terms as you apply the Bible to your own life. You know, we are in our fourth message now in our series called, Is That Really in the Bible? And we've been examining these popular statements that people think are in the Bible, but they're not really found anywhere in Scripture. And let me give you a little bit of a fact. There's millions and millions of Bibles all across America alone. And it's been a bestseller for many years, year after year after year after year. And it's, it, not only is it a best, bestseller, but it's also the best coffee table decoration in a lot of people's homes. See, and I'm saying that because there's a lot of biblical ignorance in our world today. Lots of biblical ignorance. And if you might have heard this name before, George Barnard, he leads a research group that, that conducts research to be able to determine the happenings within the American church, within the, the, the Christian culture here in America. And I think his surveys really give us some insight, some interesting beliefs of what's going on in our lives here in this country. And I want to just review a few that I, that I, I thought I found that interesting that kind of pertain to what I'm talking about. 65%, according to the Barner Research Group, 65% of Americans believe that the Bible answers all or most of the basic questions in life, which is a good number. We want it higher, but that's, we'll take that, 65%. But 44% also believe that the Bible, the Quran, the Book of Mormons can all teach the same truths. 60%, he says, of, the, of Americans cannot name half of the Ten Commandments. Half of the Ten Commandments they cannot name. 63% can't even name all four Gospels in the New Testament. 31% believe that a good person can earn his or way uh, into heaven. And 81% believe that God helps those who help themselves. And that's a, they believe that that's a direct quote from, from the Bible. That's a statement I want us to explore this evening. God helps those who help themselves. Is it found in the scriptures? Well, it, it certainly sounds good, but it, it isn't. So I want us to be able to examine three aspects of this quote. I want us to be able to look first at the half truth of it. Then I want to go on and look at the lie of that statement. And then I want to move on to tell us the truth about that statement. And if we do this with open hearts, I promise you, if we start to seek the Lord's wisdom the way we're supposed to be seeking his wisdom, I believe we'll see what the Bible does say about this statement. So let's go ahead and look at our passage for tonight. Our passage comes from Psalm 94, verse 17 through 19. Psalm 94, 17 through 19. Hopefully you're there already. Psalm 94, starting in verse 17. Are you there? Say amen. amen. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight 
my soul. Let's pray. Lord, Father, I just want to thank you once again for today. And I thank you for this time of fellowship with you and with each other. And Father, I just ask that you just use the Holy Spirit within us to teach us and guide us to what we need to know. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And it's something that a lot of people don't get that opportunity for. So help us not just uh, take advantage of it or even become apathetic towards it, Father. But we start to look at it with new new vigor, Father, with just that zeal to be able to learn more about you. Thank you, Lord, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we looked, we talked about that statement, and we want, I want to jump right in because we got a lot of stuff to talk about tonight. So let's look at the half-truth. See, the half-truth about that statement is that God won't help you if you're lazy. God won't help you if you're lazy. That's a half truth. Now, many of these biblical misquotes that we've been going over the last few weeks, this is the fourth session, and we're going to continue on for a few more after this. They contain some degree of truth within them. You know what they always say, right? A broken clock is at least right twice during the day. Okay, so there's some measure of truth in that saying, but it's not a full measure of truth. So we really need to be careful about it. And some suggest that this saying was originated by Benjamin Franklin, who published it in Poor Richard's Almanac back in uh, 1735. But he only popularized it. See, most likely it originated from an old Aesop fable that tells this following story. Listen, a wagoneer was once driving a heavy load along a very muddy way. He came to a part of the road where the wheels sank halfway into the mire. The more the horses pulled, the deeper sank the wheels. So the wagoneer threw down his whip, knelt down and prayed to Hercules. Oh, Hercules, help me in my hour of distress. But Hercules appeared to him and said, man, don't sprawl there. Get up and put your shoulder into the wheel. The gods help them that help themselves. See, this statement, God helps those who help themselves. I think you probably agree that it's seldom spoken in kindness. It's usually spoken as a harsh statement to somebody, challenging that person to get up from their pity party and start getting to work. See, this half-truth is, this is a half-truth because the Bible tells us that God will not bless laziness. Turn to second, keep your finger there. You don't have to, we'll go back to it a little bit later. But go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. And we're going to go through some scripture. So if you need to write it down, write it down. You can review it later. 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all but are busy bodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now let's imagine for a minute. Can we do that? Use our imaginations a little bit here. Let's imagine that you need a job to be able to feed your family. You need to be able to make money to be able to buy the groceries so you can feed your family on a daily basis. And then we know as Christians, our, the thing that we're supposed to be doing first is jump on our knees and asking God to be able to get us a job, to help us get a job. 
But what we're not supposed to do is after we pray is just sit by the phone and wait for some random call to come and say, I want to offer you a job. We need to actually get out there and do something about it. We got to fill out the application, send in the resumes, and do whatever it takes to be able to get people know that we need a job. See, that's what Jesus meant here when he told us to, to ask and seek and knock. See, laziness is part of our sinful nature. Every one of us has that within us. And some people would just love to lay around by the pool and the sunshine and just have God put food in their mouth like they're some king or queen. And not just put the food in their mouth, but have God massage their jaws so they can chew it without putting any effort in. And then even tickle their throats so they can swallow the food. See, God blesses people who display energy and initiative. He, he gives people blessings when they display energy and initiative. If you've ever watched ants work, I'm sure you'll agree that they're busy little creatures. Amen? Amen. Did you know that in the book of Proverbs, God uses a tiny ant as an example for us? Look at Proverbs 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 through 9. Proverbs 6, 6 through 9. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from from your sleep? It's saying to us, you fool, look at this ant. Look at it. Let it teach you a thing or two about life, about what you're supposed to be doing. Nobody has to tell that ant what it needs to do, but it does it anyway. All summer, it works hard to be able to store up food for the winter. So how long are you going to laze around doing nothing? How long are you going to do it? Before, how long is it going to take before you actually get out of bed and work? Do you know anybody like that? I hope not. But the reality is we probably know somebody like that. So there's a measure of truth in this misquote, but it's only a half truth. And followers of Jesus should embrace only the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen? So now we looked at the half truth. Let's move on and look at the lie. All right, the lie tells us that self-help is the best help. The lie says self-help is the best help. See, this, this statement is an extremely dangerous lie because it, it, it promotes the value of self-help. And some say, you know, that, that the whole self-help movement began with one simple book written in 1967 by Dr. Thomas Harris. And it was titled, I'm okay, you're okay. See, today, every secular bookstore has a large section entitled self-help or self-improvement, whatever it is, depending on the bookstore. And there you're going to find hundreds and hundreds of titles of books devoted to helping you help yourself. I went on Amazon this week and I searched, I put in the search bar, self-help books. 
And uh, some of the titles I found really took me back, to be honest with you. And I can't mention some of those because there's a lot of vulgarity in the titles. But here's some I can mention. The best self, be you, only better. Think and grow rich. Create your own destiny. And try Plato, not Prozac. See, Americans are willing to spend millions upon millions of dollars every year to buy books like this that can help them try to find some secret way to help themselves out of their problems. The trouble with this approach is that it reinforces self-centeredness instead of seeking the one who is able to help us in all things, who truly has the power to be able to help you and me. Self-help books and seminars are only designed to be able to give people self-assurance and self-confidence. And these are wonderful and helpful traits. Don't get me wrong. You need to be able to love yourself as much as you can love other people. You know, we have to be able to do that. But when it comes to your relationship with God, self-reliance leads to self-sufficiency. And it can lead you away from seeking God. So I want to notice two dangers of uh, spiritual self-reliance, if I may. The first danger is that uh, self-reliance makes you arrogant. Self-reliance makes you arrogant. There was a professional heavyweight boxer. You probably heard of him. His name is Muhammad Ali. And he never lacked any self-confidence throughout his whole career. He was known to look right into the television camera and say, I am the greatest. And well, before Ali was diagnosed with his Parkinson's disease that he had, he boarded an airplane for a trip one day. And the flight attendant came by his seat and told him that he needed to buckle his seat. And he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Well, the flight attendant, without hesitation, said, Superman don't need no airplane either. So buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> See, while most of us have never displayed this kind of arrogance that Muhammad Ali displayed on that plane and other times in his life, we are all still born with a self-centered personality and one that's devoted to be able to promote self and to protect ourselves. We create our own little self-centered universe. And you can see it today in some of our cocky sports and stars and our celebrities that you see on TV. But you can also see it in a three-year-old when they're trying, when we're trying to teach them something and they get frustrated with you and says, I can do it myself. See, it's in every one of us. Every one of us. That's human nature. We want to think that we can do anything. We really do. And when we've done something, we are so proud of ourselves. When we accomplish something, we, we want it to be able to take all the credit because we accomplished it. But the Bible says that it's God who has given us the ability to be able to accomplish all things. It's God, not you, not me. But if you ask many successful people what's their key to success, many people tell you, oh, they were able to work harder and smarter than other people and just push them through life. 
But the Bible tells us differently. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 and 18, Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, it says, Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. So we really need to be careful when we start giving ourselves credit. We need to give the credit where credit is due. If you remember, 1 Peter 5.5 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We need to remember that very specific verse and apply it into our own lives every day, every moment. That that we have to resist our proudness because if we don't, God will resist us. So we need to be on guard and against any kind of self-assurance that produces arrogance. Second, self-assurance makes you forget your dependence on God. Self-assuredness makes you forget your dependence on God. If you believe that statement that God will help those who help themselves, then you probably convinced yourself that you can handle most of the situations that you go through in your life. The only way you need to bother God is when you face those really tough situations that are going on. But see, God is not looking for people who are self-reliant. He doesn't want that in us. He's seeking people who understand what it means to be able to deny themselves and depend on him for everything. Jeremiah 17.5, in there we read, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. You know, some people think that they can trust their muscles. They can trust their skill or their intelligence so that they don't really need a God, especially our God. There's a hymn I love to sing. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. God helps those who help themselves. Well, that saying might lead someone to think that maybe God needs our help instead of us needing God's help. Let me introduce you to a woman in the Old Testament who apparently believed that God helps those who help themselves. Her name was Sarai. Her husband's name was Abram. And you know the story, they were a childless couple, and yet God gave Abraham a very specific promise that he would have a son one day, and it would be with Sarah. And one day, uh, his descendants would be so numerous, you could, you could, they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham, well, he believed God and he told Sarah, his wife, or Sarai at the time, his wife. So they started uh, believing and hoping and having a child one day because God promised them that they were going to have it. And they weren't some young couple either. You know the story. They were in their 70s and 80s. And so this, they're definitely not in a time in their life that age would be a point that they plan to have a newborn within their life. You know, I mean, I don't know about you. When I'm 70, I'm done with babies. 
<laughs> maybe grandbabies or great grandbabies by then, but not hopefully, uh, Lord willing, please, Lord willing, no babies at 70, 80. But so that's where they were standing right there, and they were still looking towards the Lord because they believed that God was going to provide one. But when Sarah was unable to get pregnant, what does she go and do? She decides to take matters in her own hand, doesn't she? And she, she decided at that point, God needed a little help from her. After all, God helps those who help themselves. Hope you hear the sarcasm in there. So she came up with some scheme to produce a son. And so in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. You can almost hear those wheels turning in Sarai's mind when she responded, God promised us a child, Abram. Don't you remember that promise? Look at us. We're not having children. It's God's fault I'm barren. So I'm going to do what I can to help God out. So she, what does she do? She, she lets him ha, have relations and they have another child. Uh, but Sarai just thought, well, it's my maid and my husband. It will be my child anyway. But Hagar, well, she didn't have much of a choice in that matter. I'm glad we don't live in that time. And they had a son whose name was Ishmael. And 14 years later, when Abram, Abraham was now 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old, she finally gave birth to a son. They named him Isaac, which means laughter. Laughter. Because Sarah laughed when she heard the angel say that she was going to have a son. And Ishmael becomes the, the father of all the Arab land. And an angel told Hagar that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man. And his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he'll live in hostility towards all of his brothers, the angel said. And so today, in year 2020, the Arab Muslims can trace their lineage back to Abraham through Ishmael, while the Israelites, the Jews, trace their lineage through Isaac to go back to Abraham. And so much of the warfare and the killing that we see every day in the news that happens so often in that Middle East, it's between those Jews and Arabs, and it traces way back to that bad decision that Sarai made almost 4,000 years ago. Do you think a decision you make today can have that kind of impact? If you don't think so, think again. It could. If only Sarah would have waited on God and trust in his promise. But instead, she believed God needed her help. See, when we try to make things in our own hands and help God's hand in doing things, the result is usually going to be painful. That's the danger of self-assurance. To think that we can do it. That our plans can substitute for God's plans. 
When are we going to learn that God doesn't need our help? Do you believe that? Amen. Thank God, because I mess up a lot. God helps those who help themselves. Just don't believe it. It is such a lie. All right, so we, we looked at the half-truth of that statement. We looked at the lie of that statement. Now let's move on and look at the truth of that statement. And the truth is, God helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. God responds to those who cry out to him for help. Do you need help from God today? There's two ways that we can get help from him. God helps those who admit that they're powerless to help themselves. God helps, we need to admit that we're powerless to help ourselves. That's not as easy as it sounds, though, because we don't like to admit when we're wrong. It's in our our, uh, culture, it's ingrained in our human nature to not always admit when we're wrong. That's why, especially men, we're notorious for getting lost and then not asking for directions when it would be as simple as that. Thank the Lord for GPS. (laughs) See, we just don't like to admit for help. In our culture, though, we admire self-made men. And that's because we're a do-it-yourself society. We look at these people who... I saw uh, an article, not an article, but a a piece in the news this morning about a child who, whatever, 40, 50 years ago, was put into a dumpster by his parents. And he rose up to start his own business and become a, a multimillionaire. And we look at those stories and we're, we're amazed by those kind of stories. And it is a great story. Don't get me wrong. But we have to understand that we cannot do it on our own merit. We cannot do it by ourselves. Just like when it comes to salvation, we can't do it by ourselves. We have to admit that we're a sinner, don't we? We have to admit not just saying that we're doing it, because just like if you had a brother or sister growing up and mom and dad told you to tell them sorry, you can either say, I'm sorry, or you say, sorry. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. We have to admit that we've messed up and we can't do it on our own. Charles Swindoll, I love him, and he wrote a book called The Grace Awakening, and he wrote this about the subject. It says, I consider the most dangerous hearsay on earth the emphasis on what we do for God instead of what God does for us. Some were so convinced of the opposite, they would argue nose to nose. They are often the ones who claim that their favorite verse of Scripture is God helps those who can help themselves. See, the fact is, God helps the helpless. He helps the undeserving. He helps those who don't measure up. He helps those who fall to, who fail to achieve his standard. Do you believe that? Even when you fail to achieve his standard, he still helps you. He helps you. But nevertheless, hearsay continues now louder now than ever before in history. More people believe them, uh, themselves to be masters of their own fate, captains of their own ships. And well, why not? It supports humanity's all-time favorite subject, it's themselves. See, we must admit that God is not only our source of help, but we must admit that without it, we're sunk. 
We must admit that. Compare that statement. God helps those who help themselves to the words of our text from the beginning of this evening in Psalm 94. Psalm 94, 17 through 19. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up in the multitude of my anxieties within me. Your comforts delight my soul. See, David said that he was about to die and he was helpless to be able to do anything about it. If God didn't come in and help him, it would have been all over. This is the same kind of attitude that you and I need to bring daily to God. We need to have the same attitude that we just read in Psalm 94. You know, when I was younger, I hope I don't offend anybody, but I thought hymns were boring. I really did. I was on that movement. You know, my first major church I was part of was a contemporary church. So I was on that movement of contemporary music. And I thought that, you know, we don't, we don't need hymns any longer in our lives because we have this new music. Every other music moves on. Why not church music? But then one person, instead of just dismissing me or looking at me like I, um, I have two heads on my shoulder, had a heartfelt conversation with me about that subject. And there was something that she said to me that sticks out to me even to this day. She says, if you and I were standing on a deserted island and neither one of us knew Jesus Christ as our Savior, and you had the lyrics to your contemporary song, and I had mine, my hymn book with me, you might be saved depending on the song you read. But if you open up that hymn book, you're going to read the whole body, of, the whole Bible within there, and you will be saved. You'll see everything about God in that hymn book. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing that, that you can't listen to contemporary music. Hear me, okay? But what I am saying is that we need to look further into what the message is bringing. We need to know what God is saying to you and me. We can stand on the hymns. There's some contemporary music we could stand on too. But what I am saying is that we need to look for God for the truth and rely on Him for the full truth. There's a song in our hymnal. It's called Hallelujah, What a Savior. I don't know what the number is, 337 or something like that. You may know the song. Some of you may know it as Man of Sorrows, What a Name. One reason I like it is because it tells a full story of the act of atonement or forgiveness. And the third verse says this, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. So are you willing to admit that you're guilty, that you're vile, that you're helpless? I can't do that for you. Only you can do it for yourself. Only then when you're, are you going to be able to find that God helps those who are helpless. So trust, trust him alone for help is number two. Trust him alone for help. 
God is not one of several sources for you. He's the only source of help. Let me see if I can find it. Psalm 121. Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. Look at that. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. See, most people, when they were reading that, 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 this passage, they think that David had his eyes towards the hills and then, you know, somehow, you know, it reminded him of God. But the Hebrew grammar in this it makes it clear that he was actually asking a question here. He says, does my help come from the hills? No, no, my help comes from God. Are we looking to the hills or are we looking to God? The hills look beautiful, don't they? I went to Seattle many times and I got to see Mount Rainier so many times. And it's so beautiful on a clear day that you just want to be able to, to trek it and go to the peak of Mount Rainier. But that's not where you're going to find it. That's not where you're going to find help. The help comes from the Lord and only Him. So what's in your life keeping you awake? What dangers are lurking up in the hills around you? There's no reason for you to be able to stay up any longer at night worrying about everything that's happening in your life. We need to stop worrying about that kind of stuff. See, God never gets sleepy and he never snoozes. Remember this morning, he cares for every single detail in your life. He loves you that much. But he's also watching over you so you don't need to be afraid. So the next time you hear someone say, well, God helps those who help themselves. Be sure to say, well, not, not quite. In truth, God helps the helpless. Close on this story. The beginning of the 20th century was a very interesting time in this country, in the world, actually. Charles Darwin introduced the theory of evolution way back in 1859. And with his, he, he wrote in his book of The Origin of Species about that theory. And that theory was gaining popularity all over the world. And many, many people believed in, the, in social evolution as well. They believed that, there, that mankind was getting better and better as we evolved. That's what the, they, were, they were thinking during this time. And then eventually we would continue to get so good that we would end up living in utopia. Well, I don't know. We're 150 years later. I don't see utopia. That, that's just a side note. But during this time, the, the Industrial Revolution was also in full swing. And early in the 20th century, the telephone, the airplane, the electric light, the horseless carriage, they were all invented during that time period. And it was a heady time, and man had this pompous confidence in themselves and in technology. Well, at the very pinnacle of this evolutionary climb was the construction of what was supposed to be the indestructible greatest ship in history, the Titanic. It was the biggest, fastest, most luxurious ship that was ever built. 
It was a symbol of man's technological evolution. And it was dedicated on May 31st, 1911. And when it was, someone overheard an employee of that white star line that said, even God himself couldn't sink this ship. And on her maiden voyage, she knew the story, cruising along at 22 knots because they had no, no fear about any petty thing like an iceberg. And they were on this unsinkable ship. They come along, and we know it wasn't unsinkable at all. So on April 14th in 1912, the Titanic sideswipes an iceberg and a 300-foot gash comes across the side of the ship on the starboard, starboard hull. And an ironic twist of fate, those watertight compartments, which were designed to keep the ship afloat, is what actually caused it to sink. Those six compartments started filling up with water because they were left open at the top. And then when the water filled them, it would flow into the next compartment and the seventh compartment and eighth compartment and the ninth compartment until the sea water just kept on filling up the ship and eventually bringing it down to the bottom of the North Atlantic. The mind-boggling thing about the Titanic was it was able to hold 3,000 passengers, but yet only had lifeboats for 1,000. That's the height of arrogance right there that lifeboats are not required because this is an unsinkable ship. Well, two hours and 40 minutes later, you could say goodbye to the Titanic and 705 people were able to survive in that accident while 1,528 people lost their lives because there was no lifeboat for them. I want you to understand something from this story. The iceberg wasn't responsible for the death of all those people. Their arrogance was. Their arrogance was. And our world that we live in, that you and I live in today, is very much like the Titanic on that moonless night. We're plunging ahead, full steam ahead, and we're you know, doing whatever we want to do with the parties and the, the, whatever we want to do, as long as it makes us feel happy, right? That's what our world is saying to do. And we're unaware or maybe even uncaring about those icebergs that lay ahead. See, sadly, the Titanic is the epitome of self-confidence attitude that says, I can do it all by myself. Nothing can stop me. I don't care about God. I don't need him. He's nothing but a lifeboat. And I'm on my unsinkable ship. So... I want you to know that there is a lifeboat for you. That lifeboat is Jesus Christ. And he's not there just for, to accept him as your savior. He's there every day of your life. Because every day we have an opportunity to have a sunken ship. Not for our salvation, but in our faith. So he wants to be there for you and me. And all we need to do is place our life in him. And he'll be able to carry us over all those waters safely. And we don't have to worry. That doesn't mean we won't go through the problems. You hear that? We still go through the problems just like the Titanic. But we can be a survivor. And it's important to remember that, that he's there for every waking moment of our lives. But we must admit that we're helpless. That we are 
on a ship that can be sunk without him. And we must trust him with every ounce of our being. With all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We must trust him. And we must remember that God helps those who are helpless. Nick Manzi is Senior Pastor of Central Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. If you want more information about the church, or if you're ready to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, contact Brother Nick at PastorNickCentralBaptistPSL at gmail.com. God bless you as you go about the rest of your day, and thank you for listening and sharing our podcast.